0: If you asked me if I was middle class, I would say yes. I'm going to guess, without knowing the details of your personal situation, that most of you guys would probably say yes too. The middle class is a pretty elastic designation, honestly. There are a ton of different ways to define it. None of them is perfect. There are also a ton of ways to use it politically. As you may have noticed if you've spent any time following Canadian politics in the past few years, the middle class is the main group all parties want to appeal to. So much so that us middle class folks now have our own member of the cabinet. I, Mona Forti, do solemnly and sincerely promise and declare that I will truly and faithfully and to the best of my skill and knowledge execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Minister of Middle Class Prosperity and Associate Minister of Finance. And even the minister responsible for prosperity among the middle class can't define who exactly belongs to it. What is the middle class then? Again, I'm back at saying middle class is, uh, doesn't have a unique definition. We have to make sure we represent the realities in a rural, remote, or even urban setting. Now, I'm still not sure what that minister is supposed to do that's not already covered by the ministers of finance and health and education and so forth. But I do know that creating that cabinet position is supposed to make me feel, and you feel, like the Trudeau government is looking out for people like us, the middle class. But to get back to where I started this, who are people like us? Who is really middle class? What does that term mean? mean right now, in the year 2020, that it didn't when it was coined 70 years ago? Are the aspirations of the middle class of the 1950s really applicable to those of us who define ourselves as middle class right now? And what should the middle class of today be aspiring to, and what should that brand new minister who's responsible for our prosperity be doing to help us get there? Mm -hmm. I'm Jordan heath Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Max Fawcett is a writer, a reporter, and a commentator. He looked into the middle class of yesterday and today for The Walrus. Hello, Max.
1: Hey, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing well. I need you
0: to uh, explain a little bit of history to me off the top. Where does our current notion uh, and definition of the middle class come from? Like, uh,
1: How did we conceive of this and when? I think it's emerged uh, in in the wake of the Second World War. You had... Uh, soldiers demilitarizing, you had this massive workforce uh, of women who had been participating uh, in the military workforce. And it kind of combined to create this this major economic boom throughout the Western world, where people bought houses, they bought cars, there was this ever-expanding array of consumer goods that they could put in their homes. And it it really kind of combined to create this this strong cultural image of of a vibrant middle class. And To some extent, that's still the image that we have in our heads today. What were the
0: aspirations of the middle class uh, back when it was conceived of? You know, what what did those people strive for?
1: I think they strived for a lot of the things that the middle class today strives for, which uh, which is, you know, the best for their family, uh, economic opportunity, the ability to enjoy life. But a lot of that was was happening through the lens of consumerism. Consumerism was not much of it it was not nearly as much of a of a trend or an influence uh, in the preceding you know call it half half century of the of the 20th century certainly people consumed things but but consumption was not as much a driving force in the economy as it became uh, in the years after the second world war so you you had these families who were increasingly influential and powerful economically and they demanded and and purchased an increasing array of goods whether it was dishwashers um, stoves, cars, new clothes, you name it. it. it really became the way that the middle class expressed itself was through its consumer choices. And that uh, built this this new kind of economy. You know, we certainly were still manufacturing things in North America, but increasingly we were manufacturing things uh, for middle class families. It wasn't just tanks and and heavy machinery. it was it was household goods and appliances as well.
0: This is what I found uh, fascinating about your piece, and just the term in general. Is it's this this notion that was conceived of like seventy plus years ago that we're still aspiring to today? Even though I would imagine the circumstances in which most people who would define themselves as middle class uh, has changed pretty profoundly in that time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think we're we're as much a consumer culture as we've ever been. I, you know, I'm thinking of the new. Uh, earbuds or, or earphones that Apple just released that are apparently seven hundred dollars and and apparently people are lining up for them so you know we may be in the middle of a pandemic but we're still happy to consume and and identify ourselves through our purchases um, but the advantage that families had in the middle class families had back in the 50s 60s you know in, in addition to not spending 700 dollars on earphones was a lot of them had uh, a kind of built in insurance policy in the fact that they were mostly one income households. Uh, you know, we would never go back to that willingly. And, and certainly I wouldn't where, you know, we had this division of labor where, you know, men worked and women took care of the home, but that did create a kind of insurance policy where if, you know, if the man's job disappeared or he was out of work uh, the, the, the wife could, could go and and take, take employment to sort of shore up the family's finances And so they were just in a stronger economic position than the average middle class family is today, where by and large, it's both people working, both people working as hard as they can for as many hours as they can. And yet still we have, you know, these enormous mortgages on on homes in, in major cities. A lot of us are carrying personal debt at levels that would have been inconceivable a generation ago. And so we appear to be doing well. We appear to be as middle class uh, as our as our grandparents and parents were, and you know, in many respects, we have better wine, better food, better appliances, better everything. But when you drill down to the sort of bedrock of our of our existence and and how secure we feel compared to how secure they felt, I think we're we're not doing nearly as well. And and that's kind of, I think that explains why a lot of middle class people feel nervous these days. They feel um you know precarious in ways that that would have been i think kind of foreign to middle class families uh, in the 50s 60s and 70s
0: i don't generally love asking guests for numbers but you mentioned uh, a couple things about you know household debt and uh, the overall financial security of the middle class then versus now can you give me some figures so i can understand just how much has changed
1: sure happy to so at the beginning of 2020 and this is before covid and um, the government supports that have that have come in for COVID kind of threw these numbers a little bit out of whack, but the average Canadian household owed a dollar seventy seven for every dollar of act after tax income, uh, and combined, that's more than two point three trillion dollars. Now, a lot of that is is in our mortgages, in our homes, uh, in our car payments, but but that is a level of debt that would have been unfathomable to the middle class in the nineteen sixties or in the nineteen seventies. Back then. You know the, the the average household owed far less than a dollar for every dollar of after tax income they had, um, and and it's sort of a if you look at the chart, it's just it's like a ski hill. It just keeps going up and up and up the amount of debt that we have, and and part of that is a function of interest rates. You know, in the in the late '70s and early '80s, we had interest rates above twenty percent briefly, which is just I mean that's like you know, the sky being red or or the moon being made out of cheese, it just doesn't make any sense to us in 2020. But that's, that's where it was. And, you know, and since then, it's kind of been going down progressively to the point now where I think we've almost become accustomed to, to interest rates being at or near zero, which explains why we're so cu- comfortable comparatively with taking out debt. But this is, this is still a precarious position because interest rates can go up. Um, and if they do, and certainly, that's a possibility. It's going to put a lot of middle class families in a real tough spot, tougher than they're in right now,
0: so is that uh, level of debt sustainable uh, in the long term for an entire you know middle class of people? Uh, how many how much of the middle class right now is is living beyond its means?
1: it's I think that's one of those questions that we're only going to know the answer to in hindsight. So you know as a society we're we're, we have more debt uh, on our balance sheet, both as households and as, a gov- as governments, than we've ever had before. And we just don't know where the line is in terms of how, how far we can go before we go too far. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, I think, in, in, previous, in previous podcasts. So right now, Canadian households, as, you know, by and large, are, are okay. Um, you know, I, I put something in the piece from uh, a poll that Ipsos did for the insolvency firm MNP that said almost a third of Canadians can't pay their bills without going deeper into debt, and another 21% said that they're $200 or less away from insolvency at the month's end. So that's that sounds bad. You know, I had some people on Twitter point out that uh, you know being being close to insolvency doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go into insolvency, but that, you know that kind of feels like. Missing the forest for the trees. The fact that a lot of people are that close, you know, two hundred dollars or less is 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 worrying. Um, So I, I, you know, I if if interest rates spiked up to four or five percent from where they are right now, I think that would put a lot of people in trouble, and and it would require government to step in and 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 do something to help them. And you know, governments have have been pretty good about that over the last year, but but even they have their limits. So. I'm not sure that we can continue down this road of, of taking on ever more debt to finance ever more. And I don't want to say extravagant, but ever larger lifestyles. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've had this conversation with, with my parents, with, with other baby boomers and, and, you know, have kind of pointed out that, that houses that cost $50,000 when they were uh, my age now cost, you know, 2.3 million. And their point was, well, our houses weren't the same as your houses are now. They weren't as big. Um, they weren't as as sort of well decorated, well taken care of. It, their expectations, I think, were were lower than than what we've come to expect uh, for ourselves as as members of the middle class. And you know, that's I think a tribute to the success of marketing and the success of of sort of you know consumerism as a as a cultural force. But I'm not sure we can keep ratcheting up the the. You know, the, the levels here, I think we've we're kind of hitting a ceiling and and kind of need to do a reassessment of, of just how important it is for us to have ever bigger homes, have ever newer cars, have ever uh, more more expensive vacations. I, I think it may be time to do a gut check there.
0: How do you go about doing that? Because that's what I'm uh, really wondering about. You know, we have a minister uh, of the middle class now, so theoretically we're prepared um, to tackle the changing nature of this problem. But but where do you even start when you have uh, something that seems to begin kind of with just an aspirational mentality?
1: Yeah, the the middle the minister of middle class prosperity definitely uh, was a thing and a title that that came in for for a lot of mockery, and I think much of it deserved. Um, but underneath all of that, there was a really interesting kind of development that I don't think many people caught because, again, you know, most of the attention was on the mockery. Uh, Mona Forche, who is, who is said minister, was tasked with introducing the kinds of quality of life metrics that, that now Scotland and New Zealand use in, in their budgeting process to our own budgeting process. So, you know, in addition to thinking about financial metrics, you know, debt deficits, all that kind of stuff there. She, she's been charged with introducing health metrics. Uh, you know, how does this budget reflect on the the health of the population? How does it reflect on the mental health of the population And, and so on? And, you know, I think that could prove to be transformative in the long run because it will shift the conversation around how we spend and how we invest to, to be, sort of a bigger picture conversation and I think you know in, in our own lives we need to do the same thing so it's it's tricky to pull a, a silver lining out of covid because there's been a lot of bad that it has brought to a lot of people but I do think one of the silver linings is it's kind of forced us to reassess what really matters and and, and the way that we spend our money so from my perspective you know and I, I'm a little sheepish about this but you know I used to spend a fair bit of money on clothing um, and I haven't—I barely spent a nickel on it this year. I, you know, I think I've gotten some new socks and maybe a shirt or two. And I'm just as happy as I was before about the clothes I put on my back. And I think a lot of people have experienced similar revelations about the fact that buying things doesn't actually make them any happier. What makes them happier right now is being able to see friends, being able to see family, um, and and doing work that's important to them. So, you know, maybe as we come out of this. Are, we're going to be a little less willing to to try to solve our, our happiness issues with money. And maybe we'll try to do it with relationships and, and with things that have deeper meaning. And, you know, if we do that, m- maybe the whole understanding of what it means to be middle class starts to change. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show.
0: Just based on the the numbers behind it, not as many people are middle class as think they are middle class based on, on what they can afford and how we define it. I mean, I, I played a clip in the intro uh, to this episode in which our minister of middle class prosperity could not really accurately define what middle class was. And it feels like there really is no definition and most people would consider themselves that even though – Uh, it's almost impossible for young people to own a home, even though we're carrying higher and higher levels of debt. Like at what point do we say like, that's not middle-class?
1: Yeah, that's the, the idea of what, what is and isn't middle-class and where the, the sort of demarcation lines are on it is an interesting question. I mean, you know, you can, you can do it with percentage of household income. You can do it with percentage of, of, you know, assets, uh, owned in a household. You can do it a lot of ways with metrics, um, but the funny thing is, you'll still always see, you know, people who make $500,000 a year consider themselves middle class. Um, and, and by the same token, you'll see, you know, students just out of university who barely make 25000 think they're middle class. So, you know, I think middle class is more of a mindset than than a metric. And it's fair to, to criticize the minister for, for not being willing or able to put hard definitions around it. But it I think that reflects the fact that none of us can really do it. It's it's more of an aspirational thing. And and on some level that that is one of the valuable aspects of the idea of middle class is that it's one of the the last places where we all kind of feel like we belong to a certain extent. You know, we're we're all increasingly polarized by, you know, partisanship and and things we believe and and ways we are online and it feels like it's harder and harder to find common ground with other people, but at least for now, it seems like there's a lot of middle ground on the idea that we're all middle class or would, or would like to become middle class. And I think that that, that has value and we should, we should try to work with that.
0: What concrete steps uh, could government take to enable this shift from a commercial-based middle class to a, to a sustainable and health-based
1: one? First and foremost, the government has the power to tax and, and it has used that power in recent years in very different ways. Than it did when the middle class was at its strongest so you know in the 1950s and 60s the, the you know the top marginal tax rate was was eighty percent um you know that's that's unfathomable uh in this day and age you know and in, uh, in some some cases you know people in the wealthiest one percent pay less in taxes in terms of their rate than than you know teachers and and, and bus drivers so I think we need to fix that I'm, I'm not saying that all the the answers lie in, in just taxing the rich, but we certainly can tax the rich more. Um, we've lost sight of the fact that that taxes are not just money that goes out; they are they are the price of of society and of of the kind of society we want. And I think if we want to rebuild the middle class and help make it stronger, we need to be willing to pay the price. Um, but it's also about investing in places and things that makes consumerism. Perhaps a little less relevant in terms of how we create our own identities so you know for for the last thirty years the the federal government has been kind of all in on promoting home ownership as as a way to build wealth and you know in some respects it's been very successful there but that's not going to work for younger Canadians unless they have you know parents who are who are wealthy and willing to help them out you know when you look at Toronto and Vancouver, the housing markets there are basically unapproachable for for young people, young members of the middle class. So the government can certainly support other forms of housing, whether it's cooperative housing, uh, you know, lower cost rental housing, multi-generational housing, there's lots of ways they can expand the playing field there. They can certainly do more to support families by by supporting uh you know a federal da- a federal daycare standard you know we've been talking about this it seems like for my entire life um but we haven't done anything about it yet if we made major investments in child care uh, the degree to which it would empower not just women but but you know middle-class families across the country i think would be would be astonishing uh, it would create space for them it would create a sense of security and, and would allow them to make different choices than they do right now so there's lots that government can do if it if it summons the courage and you know i hate to be a broken record but it feels like the last 10 months 12 months have shown that governments can do a lot more than we thought they could going into covid um and i think it's up to all of us to hold them accountable to that that they can't go back to the way things used to be of saying well we can't afford that well we, you know it's too ambitious it's not too ambitious it's it they they can be ambitious it's just whether they want to do it or not um but the, but it's also up to us, you know. Uh, we we can't just expect the government to to fix this for us. We have to be accountable for our own choices and accountable for the fact that buying more stuff does not make us happier. What makes us happier are our relationships, are are having jobs that we love. Uh, you know, all these sort of non-financial or, or non-consumer things, and we got to be willing to to put the HGTV crack pipe down and and kind of. Uh, you know, be a little more invested in, in the communities we create uh, rather than just trying to buy our way to happiness.
0: That was going to be my last question anyway. So I'm glad you brought it up because I just don't know how feasible it is to imagine that happening um, across the entire swath of Canada that we consider the middle class consumerism is entrenched uh, in our daily lives. And, you know, I don't want to sound like uh, an idealistic hippie when I say maybe we should all, you know, learn to practice mindfulness or, or meditate or value time with family and friends. But I mean, I, I don't know how you get Canadians to to shift that mindset en masse.
1: I, I, and I would have agreed with you wholeheartedly before COVID. I, I think it would have, you know, absent some sort of uh major shock to the system I, I don't really see how we could have gotten gotten off of this this you know escalator that we've been on our whole lives it it's too entrenched in our economy it's too entrenched in our culture and it's too entrenched in our own our own kind of lived experiences uh it's in our it's in our bones to want to buy things right and it's how we it's how we identify ourselves it's how we express our our individuality which you know don't even get me started about that. But it, it, it really is just, it's bedrock stuff. But again, you know, the, the last year with COVID has really shaken some things loose. It's, it's given us an opportunity, and, and God help me, I'm going to use this phrase. It's given us an opportunity to reset a lot of the things in our lives. And, and you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that we need to be conspiracy-minded about the idea of a reset. I think, I think we needed one. Um, we, we were doing things and behaving in ways that were, you know, not just destructive to the planet, not just destructive, um, to our communities, but we're destructive to ourselves. Um, we were not getting any happier. By buying more things, you know, like the, the data here is very clear um, that, that, you know, people were not getting happier because they had bigger homes or because they had done a renovation recently uh, that was inspired by, you know, a show they saw on HGTV. And I apologize for, for double tapping HGT, HGTV here, but, um, you know, we, it, this has given us a, a chance to reevaluate and it's up to us. Do we want to do it? I think you're right. I think it's entirely possible that we could go back to the way things were once the vaccine's out there. And, and you know, there is this, this incredible longing for uh, things to go back to normal. But I do think that we should take the next, you know, five or six months before we all get the, the poke in the arm and just ask ourselves, do we really want to go back to the way things were? Do we, you know, is that really what we want? Or do we want to build a new normal? Uh, and we do have that opportunity.
0: See, I've just spent the last half hour talking with you about this. Um, and I'm very intentional about it, but I also really want a PS five (laughs) max.
1: Look, nobody's perfect. I think we're all allowed to have a few, uh, you know, consumer impulses. Lord knows I'm probably going to buy some clothes when this thing is all over, but you know, just, just little steps, little, little directional turns towards a different way of creating a middle class. I think, uh, Will matter in the long run, and and you know, governments can help us get there. I I, I do believe that.
0: Thanks for taking the time uh, to talk about this today.
1: Happy to. Thanks for thanks for your interest in my story. Max
0: Fawcett is a writer and reporter and commentator, and he wrote about the middle class for the Walrus. That was the big story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Hit us up on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn tell us if you think you're not middle class, uh, unless you're rich, in which case I don't want to hear from you. You can also find us in your podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever. Doesn't matter. When you find us, leave us a rating, leave us a review. If you like us, tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.